Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're very happy to welcome Alexander Salter back to the show. He has been with us a number of times. He is an economics professor at Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University, as well as a Young Voices contributor. And uh, I'm sure you wear a few other hats, too, Alex. I like to wear many different hats. Uh, I try and uh, I try and take on a variety of roles. There's always something new and interesting to say, and I like to be there when it's being said. Well, and I I told Alex this off the air, but I'm going to just tell this to our, to our audience. Alex has earned my respect, even on things where I may disagree with him. I like to hear what he has to say because I feel like he has paid the price to know what he's talking about. And, and that is, uh, you're, you're one of the people I take seriously. So when I see this article that you uh, collaborated with uh, Phil Magnus to write, this is for The Hill, about uh, the zombie economics of inflation and unemployment. You have my attention. Um, first of all, let's talk about this relationship between inflation and unemployment. I'm not an economist, so I'm, I'm not familiar with, with the, the relationship or supposed relationship. Can you kind of walk me through how those two things uh, interact with each other? Sure. Happy to do that. And of course, thank you first and foremost for that warm introduction, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here again. I've been really discouraged recently by the public commentary I've seen by people who frankly should know better on inflation and specifically the relationship between inflation and unemployment. The conventional wisdom you see in commentator space goes something like this. There is a stable and exploitable trade-off between inflation and unemployment. The economy is kind of like a machine. If we pull one lever, we can quote-unquote run it hot, in which case labor markets will be strong, but we have to put up with inflation. Or we can pull the lever the other way, in which case the machine will run, quote unquote, cold and we can get less inflation, but we have to put up with more unemployment. And the idea is judicious policymakers can sort of pick and choose between these points, one extreme, the other extreme or somewhere between them that reflect the exigencies of the moment. Uh, Not to put too fine a point on it, but that view is pure poppycock. That is just not how it works. There is no stable, predictable and exploitable trade off between inflation and unemployment. We have right now about 3.5% unemployment. Labor markets are looking pretty strong. You can have 3.5% unemployment with 8% inflation, like we have right now. Or you could have 3.5% inflation with, I'm sorry, you could have 3.5% unemployment with 2% inflation or anywhere in between. There's no one set of inflation rates that's compatible with maximal labor market strength. Those two things are largely independent. And we have to stop talking about this like we can just sort of pick and choose in a rationalistic, technocratic way, because ultimately that's going to empower bureaucrats to meddle with the economy too much, which is largely how we got into this mess in the first place. Okay, I have to ask you this. Again, this is because I regard you as one of the more credible people in my you know circle of, of people I listen to. How, how credible are those numbers for both inflation and for unemployment? I know that, you know, the, the, the government agencies that report on it always want to put the best possible spin. Can, can we trust those numbers or are they, uh, are they massaging them a little bit for us? Well, let me put it this way. If those are massage numbers, if those aren't the real numbers, I personally don't have better ones. 
I certainly believe it's feasible that public employees, that public officers might want to put their best foot forward, might want to present the best possible data. There are some controversy over how you're counting increase in real estate prices and rents and how those are counted in the various inflation figures. I personally find it most productive and most profitable simply to take those figures as if they reflect the reality and run with them in terms of analyzing what we do and how we go forward. Because even if the real numbers are even higher than that, would that ultimately change how I think about it and the policy prescriptions that I think would work best? No, not really. So I don't see any particular need to fight and die on that hill. I think it's just straightforward to say, look, the inflationary environment we're in right now is not good. Maybe it's even worse than the official numbers say. Maybe it's not. Either way, we got to get a control over this thing sooner rather than later. Fair enough. Uh, let's talk about the term zombie economics. I, I've, I've heard this term from time to time. Help me understand how it applies in this situation. Yeah, sure. So back in the mid-20th century, that was really the heyday of old-school Keynesian economics, which is a very technocratic view of doing macroeconomics. And it really did assert, among other things, that policymakers could pick and choose from a menu of options between inflation and unemployment. Starting with the revolution in economic theory that took place with guys like Milton Friedman, Bob Solow, Edmund Phelps, like really big names in economics, we learned, no, that's really not how it works. The maximum sustainable employment in an economy is determined by how many people you can profitably put to work. That's ultimately determined by what economists call supply-side considerations, the amount of labor we have, the amount of capital we have, machines that people can work with, our production technology, the political and institutional environment. Do the laws of the land promote commerce, or do they are they a hindrance for commerce? These sorts of things determine, ultimately, the sustainable level of employment. And really, what monetary policy can primarily do is tell you what's happening to the purchasing power of the dollar. But that happens largely independently from what's going on with labor markets. So, again, getting back to that point that I said earlier, you can have very low unemployment and high inflation at the same time. That's what's going on right now. You can have very low unemployment and low and moderate inflation. Right. This idea relies on the idea of a, quote, unquote, natural rate of unemployment that reflects ultimately economic productivity. And economic productivity does not depend on how many green pieces of paper we all have in our wallets. In the long run, the wealth and poverty of nations does not depend on monetary policy. Yes, it's true. Under some conditions, if the central bank surprises the markets by flooding them with a bunch of newly created money that we didn't anticipate, in the short run, unemployment will probably go down a little bit because the economy will look like it's healthier than it is. But I'll tell you what, the only way that you can get that surprise effect on unemployment is if the central bank is not doing its job. Because that entire narrative, that entire mechanism relies on the central bank lying to people, fooling them, right? They said you can form one set of expectations, we're going to keep inflation low and steady, and then once people bake that into their contracts, right? If you expect 2% inflation, if you're a worker, you think, okay, I need to get a 2% raise every year just to keep steady with the purchasing power of the dollar. If you're an investor, you think, I need a 2% return right away just to keep the actual real inflation-adjusted returns that I'm looking for at some minimal level. If the central bank promises that level of inflation but then floods the market with liquidities, you're going to get a funny money effect. It's going to look like the economy is healthier than it is because sales are going to boom. But guess what? All that's ultimately going to do is cause inflation with no sustainable increase in employment. What the central bank should be doing is not trying to fool market actors. 
What the central bank should be doing is creating a stable foundation for economic activity and credibly committing to markets, to workers, to investors, to all classes of people in the commercial realm. Hey, this is going to be the monetary rule of the game going forward. And provided they do a credible job of communicating that information and following through on policy, monetary policy is going to create a good foundation for economic activity, but it's not going to give you anything like an exploitable trade-off or a relationship that can be tinkered with with rationalistic technocratic central bankers. The very fact that unexpected monetary policy works means that the central bank is not doing its job. That's the key takeaway from this. So I'm going to ask you to prognosticate for us a little bit, Alex, looking ahead. Obviously, you know, inflation, we're, we're all feeling it every every time we buy something or, you know, gas up, whatever. Um, are you feeling optimistic? Is uh, Clearly, there, there's some tough times right now and, and perhaps some tougher times ahead. Does this look short term, long term? Is, is there a larger correction looming? I just I'd love to get your take. It's definitely lasting longer than I originally thought. Uh, As recently as late last autumn, I was actually on Team Transitory in the sense that we knew that we had supply problems and we knew that demand was elevated. The question was, which one of those is in the driver's seat? I thought supply problems were in the driver's seat. Data that's come in since then has convinced me that that's not true. While there are supply problems lingering from the pandemic, and while we've got a new fresh round due to the unfortunate uh, war, due to the tragic loss of life, loss of production that's happening in Eastern Europe, Demand is still on the driver's seat. That's why we're experiencing long-lived inflation. And the only thing that we should be looking at right now is, will the central bank, the Federal Reserve, have the political will necessary to shrink the balance sheet? Everybody's saying, oh, they're going to raise interest rates much faster than they anticipated. Interest rates are not determined by central banks. They're just one player in a global capital market. Right? They have targets for what they want the interest rate to be, but ultimately their power is pretty limited. If you want to know whether the Fed is serious about bringing down inflation, look at the assets on their books. Right now, the Fed's books total about $9 trillion. That has to come down. If they're not going to actually shrink the balance sheet, they're not serious about getting control over inflation. So I would say watch that before you watch anything else. Where will the pressure come from in order to, to bring down their balance sheet? Is that going to come from uh, political circles? Will it come from the market itself? Pressure to bring down inflation will come from the market itself. I'm worried that the pressure from political officials, if anything, will go the other way. Right? The Democrats are in power right now. There are a lot of new democratically appointed nominees to the Federal Reserve Board who have since been confirmed. We're looking at pretty bad midterms for the Democrats. And then after that, probably a not great presidential election cycle. If anything, I would expect politicians to pressure the Fed formally and informally to keep their foot on the gas while looking like they're doing something to the problem. So political influence in this case is hurt. All right. Always enlightening to visit with Alexander Salter. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as an economics professor at Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. Alex, great to catch up with you. Let's talk again soon. Thumbs up. Go Red Raiders. Thank you, Brian. It was a pleasure. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Jack Salmon back to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor and writer on economics. And you'll find his articles in a variety of outlets, including The Hill, Business Insider, Real Clear Policy, and National Review Online. Jack, good to catch up with you once again. 
great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me back. Well, I have been hearing a lot of talk lately about student loan forgiveness, and I certainly have my own uh, my own take on it. But I was very interested in your take, especially in this article in National Review. Forgiving student loan debt would be regressive and costly. And I want to hear more about uh, about what you have to say about this. Can I start by asking, first of all, who is the driving force behind this this push to forgive student loan debt? So the driving force really comes from it it, it was originally a a large factor within the Build Back Better agenda towards the end of last year. There was some legislation in there to push for uh, student loan loan debt forgiveness. But seeing as that legislation failed, um, there have been recent calls for executive action and the president himself has been mulling the idea of forgiving at least $10,000 of student loan debt. But there are actually also um, calls from the more progressive wing of the administration calling for far larger debt forgiveness, as much as 50000 from what I've seen. And, you know, from on the one hand, I hear some some very simple uh, ways to sum that up. Well, what that's doing is transferring debt from the people who actually incurred the debt to other people, as opposed to, to making the debt simply go away. Um, is there is there a good way to explain what happens to that liability? Because I'm assuming it doesn't just vanish into thin air, does it? No, as as with any debt, it, it has to fall on some on, on somebody. And in this case, it would be. The typical taxpayer. So there's costs and benefits with this policy, as there are with, with, with any policy. There are, there are trade-offs. The winners would be the high-earning um, graduates from colleges who would have large, large portions of their debt waived. Uh, the losers in this case would be those who chose not to go to college, who tend to have middle incomes, and they would be lifting up the additional costs in terms of additional debt which would obviously be accrued through through taxes, but also for inflation, which, uh, which as you know, is, is, is a continuing problem. And I don't like to play, you know, class warfare stuff. But in this case, I have to say, I feel a certain amount of sympathy on, you know, for the people on whose shoulders these debts would fall, namely the working class, the producers, the taxpayers in society, because largely it sounds like a lot of that student loan debt is being incurred by people who have gone to higher education or received, you know, the benefit of higher education, somehow it seems like they would have a leg up or they should have a leg up and it shouldn't be foisted off on, uh, you know, blue collar workers or, or other members of the productive class. And, and that's about as close to class warfare as I guess I can get. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that is definitely the case with this policy. And, and, and what's most baffling and, and a point that I wanted to push home with this article was, this is an administration that often paints itself as, as progressive, yet it keeps coming up with these deeply regressive policies. This isn't the first time we had the salt cap deduction debate uh, not too long ago. That's another heavily regressive policy, shifting uh, distributional costs from from high, from high earners to, to low earners. Um, just to give some idea of the regressive nature of this policy, the policy for the administration so far has been to freeze repayments on debt as well as interest since the um, the, the pandemic-induced recession in 2020, which at the time there was there was good reason for that. There was high rates of unemployment, uh, especially among recent college graduates. But the average the average American worker today with a with at least with at least a bachelor's degree has an unemployment rate of two percent. So it's no longer really an issue. Uh, the current policy of, of of freezing loans and repayments has particularly benefited those 
who tend to be the highest earners in the country. So the, the, the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget did some math back in March, and they found that the average medical school graduate has benefited from about $48,000 of cancelled interest compared to the average bachelor's degree graduate who benefited from about $4,000. So there's a tenfold difference in who's benefiting here. To give an idea, based on BLS data, um, the average physician who obviously went to medical school makes about $252,000 a year. That's, that's the median among that demographic. And it's those, it's those who, who chose not to go to college, which is two thirds of, of workers who are being asked to, to take this burden on, which is estimated to cost somewhere in the region of $220 billion of additional debt. Wow. And, and it seems like this would be unsustainable. I mean, maybe maybe in a short term scenario, something like that could could help shift the burden. But it sounds like this uh, combined with all the other um, economic pressures that we're feeling right now. I don't know that how it could be sustainable in the long run. Does this portend some kind of reform in terms of how student loans are, are administered or for that matter, whether student loans can continue uh, like they have been as we go forward? I certainly th- think it pretends a debate around student loans and and, and how uh, federal subsidies work and, and and whether or not they actually help to reduce the tuition inflation burden or whether they actually inflate tuition prices, which is what most of the empirical literature tells us. Um, most of the empirical literature tells us that for every dollar of federal subsidies towards higher education leads to about an 80 cent increase in tuition inflation. Some studies find that it's dollar for dollar. So that's definitely a debate that needs to happen. But also we have to think about this in terms of whether we see higher education as a personal choice and a human capital investment or whether it's perceived as progressives do as, as being a sort of uh, a public good or a, or, or a right that people have, which, which, is, which is the way it's often painted. I tend to obviously believe that it's a human capital investment. It's a choice that you make for the vast majority of college graduates. That investment pays off in the form of better credentials, higher skill set and higher lifetime earnings. Um, The average bachelor's graduate makes about $30,000 a year more than the average high school graduate, whereas the monthly payment on the student loans is is around $300 a month for for the average graduate, which is $3,600 a year. That seems like a good trade-off if you're paying $3,600 a year in debt repayments for a $30,000 a year larger salary, that seems like a pretty fair um, trade-off to me. To then ask those high school graduates to also pay for that education seems deeply regressive. No, I I would have to agree. Now, I also have to wonder, does this open up uh, better better opportunities or more exposure for uh, people who would, for instance, go into the trades as opposed to pursuing, you know, a a traditional academic degree? Absolutely. And I I hope that's the case. It's, it's something that I've, that I've been looking into for a while now, and I've written on this previously. Um, I think there's far greater scope in, in, in the skills trades for, for many uh, high school graduates, and, and I think things are improving on that end. There's been an issue in public policy when it comes to higher education that the orthodox position always seems to be that everybody must go to college. It, it's, just, it's just unacceptable that, that anybody wouldn't be able to go to college. Um, and I don't think that necessarily has to be the case. The labor market is changing. The, the economy is becoming more dynamic, more resilient, and, and, and there are technological improvements. Coding academies are, are springing up all over the country. And, and there are alternatives to the traditional higher education model that we really should be exploring. And I'm hoping that 
that these debates shift us in that direction and, and not in this in this public policy orthodoxy of everybody must go to college, which has always been the position of most policymakers. Uh, we're, we've got about a minute left here, Jack, but are there any voices within that public policy realm that uh, that are pushing toward reform or pushing you know, back against this, uh, this uh, trend towards uh, forgiving that student loan debt? Probably not enough, in my opinion. Um, no, no names particularly spring to mind, um, but I'm I'm definitely one of them. Um, hopefully, there are more. Um, I've been also looking into and, and writing on financing alternatives for for those who do ch- choose to go to, to to college. So things like income share agreements and having private financing options that shift the risks and the burdens of debt away from the student and towards towards the investor. Um, that, that seems to be a, sort of a market-oriented method for for financing education that 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 leaves the liability with those who want a return on their investment. All right, we are talking with Jack Salmon. He is a Young Voices contributor and writer on economics. And Jack, where can people follow you on social media? You can find my Twitter uh, my Twitter tag on my Young Voices bio page if you want to follow me there. Okay, very good. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Santiago Varela back to the show. Santiago, good to see you once again. And for those, hello, who, Brian. Thank you for having me. For those meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Okay, so I am checking in from Mexico City. Uh, right now, I'm an undergraduate student studying economics, and uh, I am very passionate about technology. Especially, I, I in my in my uh, free time, I mine Bitcoin. I have my little home mining facility. And I am very interested in energy economics, thanks to the Bitcoin. That's how I got into into this rabbit hole. All right. Well, I'm I am all ears because this is something that uh, I'm I'm increasingly wanting to know more about Bitcoin. But I have heard very frequently that one of the complaints is, oh, but it takes so much energy to mine Bitcoin. And, you know, in, in talking with people who are involved in mining Bitcoin, yes, it does take a fair amount of energy. Tell me about the upside of that that energy requirement what does that uh, what does that inspire people to seek well what 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 happens when we talk about bitcoin mining in specific specifically because bitcoin mining is something it's it's a very different conversation than just bitcoin in general when it comes to bitcoin mining it is some it is something that may be very difficult to understand but the first thing to understand is that when we talk about bitcoin mining it's all an energy business it's it's completely in the energy sector and the and the importance with energy here is that it's people some people see it as something bad but actually from a humanist perspective more energy is always good when we talk energy is literally the foundation of existence and this is something that bitcoin has brought me to see and the more energy is always, always better. Today, uh, according to, to, the, to the data, um, Americans have the equivalent of 600 people working for them. While throughout history, 
humans have been limited to only having to only using their two hands. So this is something more amazing. That's why we say, from a humanist perspective, more energy is always good. That's, that is why Bitcoin's energy consumption is is actually a feature, not a bug. And this is a quote that comes from John Belisar, CEO of of Soluna, CEO of Soluna, which is a company that that is in in Bitcoin mining. And you were you mentioned in your article that Bitcoin relies on a mechanism called proof of work. And I know there, there's another mechanism. I'm sorry, the name escapes me. But could you contrast proof of work versus uh, the other alternative? Proof of stake. Okay, proof of stake. These are these are to determine the the um, or to verify the. Uh, they're consensus mechanisms. Okay. To, to verify that, that we don't have a double spend problem because what happens, uh, what these uh, consensus mechanisms come to solve is that since this, these are decentralized systems, there is no central authority that can tell you, like, for example, uh, let's talk about JP Morgan having a, a computer where they can verify, like, oh, Brian Hyde, he has $100, but and he can't double spend them. He can't send his $100 at the same time to, to Santiago, but at the same time to his friend Ben, you know. But when there is, it's a decentralized system, we need to have a different uh, to way to verify that this doesn't happen. And, and these are very complex uh, computational processes, but um, proof of stake and proof of work really aren't alternatives. Um, proof of work is is the consensus mechanism that backs Bitcoin, and proof of stake is the consensus mechanism that backs Ether, which is the second largest cryptocurrency today. And and Ether um, Ether fans or if if advocates, what they what they want is they want Bitcoin to transfer to proof of stake because according to them, this would be better. This would um, this would uh, require less energy and be more sustainable. They have a very uh, I don't really understand their way of, of of seeing energy, but the point here is that their mechanism really doesn't solve anything because with proof of stake we don't have um, the people that put their stake in to create more coins to mine more ether. They they can really control the system. The incentives let them control the system to a point where they can actually increase the supply, and and this doesn't solve anything because. People that love Bitcoin, we love Bitcoin because it is hard money, and this is this is a thing. It is it is hard to increase its supply. It is actually for Bitcoin, it is not hard. It is impossible to. It is the only thing that it's actually scarce. Because when we talk about gold being scarce, it's not actually scarce. Like we're always discovering more, more, more and more gold. That's how it is with every resource on Earth. But with Bitcoin, it is not like that. And with proof of work, it is impossible. For for Bitcoin to to become easy money, because this mechanism it requires electricity and energy to be put in if you want more money to be or more Bitcoin in this case to be come into existence. Yeah, you introduced me to a term here in your article, energy currency. I mean, I, I've heard digital currency, and that that actually kind of makes sense to me. But I had never considered energy currency, and you said this is kind of an interesting uh, road to explore. You know what is very interesting about the, the, the energy currency idea is that it comes from a, from a long time ago. It actually comes from Henry Ford. He he already had thought about energy being being a universal currency that that could actually be accepted anywhere in the world because everyone can use and and to energy to their benefit. That's why it, it is an energy that everyone would would accept. 
And uh, yeah, I, I also really like this and it, it, this point that you bring up right now, because most people and the mainstream media look at Bitcoin and as cryptocurrencies as digital currencies. But in the case of Bitcoin, um, I, I lean more to, to see it as, as an energy currency now. And because, because really that is the backbone behind, behind this. And, and what Bitcoin mining allows us is it's to digitize energy, which is, is it's, it's something really amazing. Today we have a lot of problems. One of the greatest problems with the um, energy transition and with um, in transmitted energies like solar and, and wind energies is that we can't always, uh, energy has to be consumed as it is produced. And, some, and today we don't have the batteries available they are very, um, very expensive to produce, and they really don't exist yet to, to store all this excess energy. But Bitcoin miners act as this type of battery that can come in and monetize all that stranded energy. That is the original term. And in reality, there is so much stranded energy in the world. Bitcoin's energy consumption is not a problem because in the world, every year we consume 150,000 terawatts a year of energy. And the whole society, all humans, we only consume 50,000. Yeah, 50,000. So it's 33% of the whole energy production in the world. And 66% is just energy that goes lost. Bitcoin only consumes 80 a year. So it's it's a tiny fraction. It's actually irrelevant. We could actually use it as a good way to monetize all the energy that is just being wasted. Something else that really I thought was enlightening in your article, it was a quote from an article written by A.J. Scalia and Drew Armstrong for Bitcoin magazine. And I never had thought about this, but when I have to do things and it's just me and my two hands trying to get things done, it takes a lot of energy to get things done. But thanks to the availability of energy, electricity and so forth, we have the equivalent of nearly 600 humans working for every single one of us. And I thought, wow, does that put it into perspective? You know, how how much labor that saves and how much um, it it opens up possibilities for us to do things we couldn't have done if it was just, you know, again, our own two hands. Of course, yeah, that that's something I I wanted to mention since the beginning, because I I also thought that it has been very, very interesting. And it's it's the point that is actually at the heart of of this debate that it should Bitcoin uh, transition to proof of stake or no. That is the heart of the argument here. If we want to say that yes, Bitcoin should transfer to proof of stake. That means that we believe that less energy is better thing for the world because we will be uh, producing less contamination or whatever you want to call it. But no, if, if, we, if we look at it from this perspective, more energy is always good. And that's why I love they end up at, at the end of this paragraph, they ended up saying it and, and they said it from a humanist perspective, Less energy is never the solution. And, and you know, today the people that are, are advocating for Bitcoin to consume less energy are the Elizabeth Warrens, you know, that say that they are the humanists and, and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if it, that's not the truth. So that's, that's why I think it's, it's a very, very important point to make. Well, we're, we're down to about, we've got about 30 seconds left here. But I have to tell you, I've never equated money and energy as being things that, uh, that could actually work together. You have opened my mind to some very new possibilities. So, Santiago, I thank you for doing that. Tell people where they can follow you on social media and where they can find your work. Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Santiago, V A 
R-E-1-A. And uh, yeah, I, I am glad to talk to you and, and try to orange pill anyone into Bitcoin. It, it was great talking with you again and hope to see you soon. All right. Thank you very much. We'll be back with our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices right after this. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Gary and Frankel back to the program. He has been a regular guest, and uh, Gary, and for people who are meeting you for the first time, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me back, Brian. Um, I'm currently finishing up my master's at Texas A&M's Bush School of Government and Public Service. I focus on education policy and management. And um, among other things, I'm a contributor for Young Voices and Chalkboard Reviews Breaking News Reporter. And I follow you on Twitter, and, and you keep me informed as well as entertained. And uh, today, I think we're going to cover both of those bases pretty well. I have seen you weigh in on a term that I'm not even sure how to say. So I'm going to say it as Latinx or Latinx. But I've seen this term pop up, and you have been one of the people who's been kind of outspoken about how this is a term which I guess t- attempts to bridge that t- gender gap between Latino and Latina. And and is this supposed to be a gender-neutral way of saying Latin? Yes. This was the term Latin X was invented by academics, some of whom were Latino, but many of whom, especially uh, those who use the term today, are predominantly white. And it's meant to correct a function of the Spanish language that is seen to be intrinsically sexist because mm. Spanish is a gendered language, meaning <laughs> yep. that. Um, nouns are separate are separated into their masculine form, which ends in O, and their feminine form, which ends in A. Plural nouns are use the masculine form, but it's meant to represent the totality of whatever the word is meant to be describing. Uh, even though everybody who speaks Spanish and is involved in Hispanic or Latino culture is absolutely fine with the way things are. Uh, It appears that the white progressives have some issues that they feel a very pressing need to weigh in on. Wow. And and, I mean, when you say like the, the, the plural form, you know, it's like we used to say mankind and that didn't mean only men. In fact, only white men, that that meant everybody. But yeah, it, it seems like they're they're straining at something here. Has it helped anything? Has it solved any problems or is this just creating complications? Is, this a, is it a solution in search of a problem? It is definitely a solution in search of a problem. When you look at the population of transgender individuals as a whole, it's a very small minority of the American population. And even if you just narrow it down to just the Hispanic or Latino community, they have already figured out gender neutral terms that they would like to use for themselves that are much more consistent with the sounds and grammatical structure of the Spanish language. Um, One that I've heard pop up every now and again is Latine, which, while obviously different than Latino or Latina, 
is still very consistent with how you pronounce words in the Spanish language. Latin X sounds very strange in English, and in Spanish, it's even more nonsensical. In, in, in Spanish, that pronunciation is absolutely ridiculous, whereas something like Latine is much more reasonable. Anybody who speaks Spanish is going to know how to pronounce that. And it developed organically from within the transgender community among um, Hispanics and Latinos. And, you know, the white progressives didn't have any say in that one. It was nothing that was imposed on people who weren't them. Yeah, and then there's there's almost this assumption. If you're not using this, well, you know, you are a source of oppression and, you know, and, and otherwise you're causing harm to people. Now, you're not coming at this from, from just, you know, a disinterested third party. You actually have Latino heritage in, in your own background, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, my mother's family has lived in what is now northern Mexico for uh, as far as our documentation goes, over 500 years, and it was probably long before that, based on what Ancestry DNA says. But in any case, the proportion of the Hispanic community that actually uses the term Latin X is exceptionally small. Um, there is a poll by Pew Research a couple of years ago that found that only 3% of Hispanics used it. Uh, the majority had never even heard of it, and a majority of those who had heard of it didn't use it or didn't find it particularly agreeable. Uh, a more recent poll that I cited in my article found that 40% of Hispanics not only do not use the term Latinx, but find it outright offensive. Um, and nobody seems to think to ask the broader Latino-Hispanic community, what they actually think about Latinx before using it, because they just assume, well, it's the progressive, politically correct thing to do because this white professor at a sociology department at Berkeley said so. And it's patently absurd. Wow. I mean, this this has such Orwellian shades of, of new speak that, uh, OK, and you have to say this. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. But it's all originating from academia. What's the likelihood that this is going to become the new norm? I mean, there are things that we are having to deal with today that 10 years ago we would never have had to question. And I think a lot of that originated in academia. So I I wouldn't want to underestimate them. I wouldn't want to underestimate it either. But my gut feeling here, and I could be very, very wrong, only time will tell. But my gut feeling is that this isn't going to catch on outside of academia the way that some other forms of terminology have. Because when you look at other forms of terminology, it was created that originated in academia. It was created by a particular group for that same particular group. I think BIPOC is a very good example of that. Whereas Latinx stems from a group of academics, a few of whom are Hispanic, but many of whom are not, that is supposedly going to be this broad, overarching term for all people of Hispanic or Latino origin in the United States. And for one, it's not anything that people from Hispanic or Latino origin want. And two, even if it was, 
no two Latinos or Hispanics are the same. Somebody who is of Mexican ancestry and is from Texas like I am is going to be completely different than somebody from Cuban ancestry in Florida who's going to be completely different from someone of Dominican or Puerto Rican ancestry in New York. And it's very difficult to just compartmentalize all these very different people um, with not only just one word, even though uh, Latino and especially Hispanic have seemed to uh, have sort of worked in that regard, but something that was inauthentically imposed on them by some kind of outlying exterior force. And it's fortunate that nobody seems to be paying any attention to them at all. You know, and in your article, you brought up, as you contrast Latinx with the word Chicano. I thought, I haven't heard that word for a long time, but the Chicano movement was a very real thing, you know, just a couple of generations ago. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? And why, why did the Chicano movement succeed where Latinx is not succeeding? Yeah, the Chicano movement was, I guess it was sort of analogous to the civil rights movement, though um, Mexican-Americans had not been as persecuted as African-Americans. They're oftentimes a lot more established in their communities. The situation was very different, but it was sort of analogous to the civil rights movement. And it was a push by Mexican-Americans, particularly in California, though it spread to other states, uh, for greater economic and political rights. And while to a broad extent the Chicano movement did start in academia, it started by Mexican-Americans for Mexican-Americans for for causes that very much united all of them under one banner, um, you know, sort of getting around many of those cultural tensions that will be present in any given situation. But greater political rights, more elected officials and bilingual programs in public schools were something that a lot of Mexican-Americans wanted and were actively pushing for. So because the Chicano movement was aiming to solve a very real problem for a very real group of people is a big part of the reason why it was so successful. Wow. Well, I feel like I have uh, I've learned a lot just from this conversation with you today. For people who want to, to get a better grasp of this subject, what, what do you recommend? Obviously, we've got your article, which we'll link to in the show notes, but are there some good resources where they can, can get a good, unbiased take on this? It's hard to find some of these takes on the uh, on the Internet sometimes, although the Martin Center published another really good article on this that's a little different than mine a couple of years ago. And also, if you have people of Hispanic descent in your life, I'm very reasonably certain that they can give you a very honest take about what the Hispanic community actually thinks of this, because spoiler alert, it's not popular or well thought of. All right. Again, we are talking with Gary and Frankel. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as a graduate student at Texas A&M's University's Bush School of Government and Public Service. Where can people follow you on social media? Yeah, probably the best place to get in touch with me would be uh, on Twitter. I'm at Frankel Garion, so literally just my last name and my first name, one of the perks of having a unique name. But if you're getting in touch with me, that's probably the best way to do it. Okay, great to talk with you. I hope we can talk again soon. Thanks for having me on, Brian.